Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For as long as humans have interacted with each other, spies in one form or another have been with us. To quote the legendary spy master John le Carré, Jesus had only 12 friends over for dinner, and still one of them turned out to be a double agent. And while the nature of spycraft has evolved, its fundamental missions remain the same. To gather actionable information, to get results. Again, to quote le Carré, intelligence work has one moral law. It's justified by results. So when we look at our failures to fully understand the Soviet Union during the Cold War, the Bay of Pigs, the Tet Offensive, the Iranian Revolution, our inability to understand what to expect in Afghanistan, our shock with the recent Chinese hypersonic launch, what does it say about the state of American intelligence? Today we're told that technology is the successor to human intelligence. But what is that wrought? And doesn't it still take humans and their infinite capacity for suspicion to understand and interpret that data? As T.S. Eliot asked, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? That's our focus today with my guest, Douglas London. Douglas London retired from the CIA in 2019 after 34 years as a senior operations officer, chief of station, and as the agency's counterterrorism chief for South and Southwest Asia. He teaches at Georgetown University is a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute, and his recent book is The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. It is my pleasure to welcome Douglas London here to the program. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks so much for having me on the program. That's a great intro and a really great beginning to set the, the context of why I wrote my book. Well, thank you. I want to first of all talk about why you wrote the book, given your respect for, your appreciation of, an agency for whom secrecy is stock and trade. Talk about the decision to write a book about it. It's a difficult decision. Um, Honor the Oath is very much at the heart of our beliefs. And when I first uh, left the agency, I, I started writing what was a novel because I, I thought perhaps I could air some of these issues or, or make some of the points I had hoped in a way that was you know at least fiction in the eyes of the reader while sort of carrying a, a fair bit of truth. As I, as I did that, I, I found myself relying on anecdotes and I kept going back to actual things that had occurred in the span of my career. And I thought, you know, there might be a way to do that. What really drove me to write the book despite those concerns was the direction the agency had taken post 9-11 and the impact on the organization and and by derivative, of course, the security of the United States and its people. And I believed it was continuing to set itself up for failure where it had within its means the ability to succeed, to grow, and to set itself back on the right course. So my book was really intended to start a conversation which in my own heart and soul is in part a love letter about spying and about the necessity of it. And as you put it so well, the need for people that technology, despite what it can do for us, in and by itself cannot address our needs for security, but also to speak to the need for internally accountability for the agency to correct its wrongs, to take its warts on board and, and make itself better as it's committed to do by oath and mission. What was it about 9-11 that was some kind of inflection point for the agency? You know, in the introduction, I rattled off other 
crises that the agency has faced, other failures that the agency has faced. But but 9-11, as you talk about it in the book, was really some kind of an inflection point. It was an existential crisis. I, I think as we look back now, 20 years later, uh, it's hard to kind of feel what was going on in the country at the time. Those of us who lived through 9-11 obviously remember it all too well. But there was a, a demand then to speak of accountability for someone to take the blame for some organization to be responsible because this couldn't have just happened. This is the United States. We are the most powerful country in the world. Particularly at that point, we were in more of a unipolar situation. We were the only remaining superpower. So how could these people living in the mountains of Afghanistan and such be able to wreak such havoc? The agency at that point thought it was in jeopardy of being either absorbed by another organization, principally the Department of Defense, maybe in part the FBI, or that it might go away. So leadership at the time was in a panic and was desperate. And unfortunately, I think the particular personalities at the time who were in decision-making posts or key and influential positions with the agency leaned on unique authorities that the agency has for covert action and looked for a way to get the most important supporter of all which was the White House. They were not going to be able to ward off uh, then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, who was never a fan of the agency to begin with and was less so after he felt the agency showed him up and DOD up by being able to respond to 9-11 and having people on the ground in Afghanistan within 15 days while the Department of Defense was still trying to find its footing. And likewise, the Bureau, which didn't want to take the blame for 9-11 and was pointing fingers back you got to remember these agencies, DOD, Bureau, they've got lobbies. They've got communities. They don't operate in such secrecy. The CIA has no lobby. The secrecy that we undergo and have to you know, promote denies us advocates, lobbyists, and denies the agency itself the opportunity to say, here's what we really did. It's not like when there's an accusation, the agency can turn to the public and pull out finished products of intelligence or, God forbid, raw reporting. We rely on politically uh, uh, elected representatives and oversight to deem what we do is proper, effective and such. We rely on the president. So when intelligence is weaponized and intelligence politicized, the CIA is in a very vulnerable position. And I think they overreached and put themselves on the path that actually undermined their credibility, undermined their relationship with the American public and set us off to a glide path of lack of appropriate investment in the core values and also the core craft of intelligence collection. Why was it different, though? Why was 9-11 different than the fall of the Soviet Union, which wasn't anticipated, or Bay of Pigs, or the Iranian Revolution, some other failures in the past where the same case could be made against the agency? I think it was such emotional uh, distress going on. It was it was shocking. The United States had not been attacked, at least on that scale, since Pearl Harbor. And here we were all watching the Twin Towers fall down. We were watching the Pentagon, uh, the, the president having to circle in the air because they were afraid for his safety. The emotions were on par with World War II shock, but even more brought home because of media. We could watch it on TV. We could have constant social media activity and news updates 24-7 news coverage and uh, these other events, as you correctly say, there's a little bit more of two sides to the story 
in terms of what we did and didn't know. And the CIA has had a lot more successes than failures, most of which are kept from the public eye. So we could speak to, I mean, you mentioned the, the hypersonic missiles. If, if we look back, even in open and press reporting, there was an explosion, which the intel community somewhat was put in the public forum, believed was China, in fact, testing hypersonic weapons. So it, it may be a shock to us in the public, but I, I seriously doubt it was as much of a shock. I think the ramifications of how terrorism touched everyone personally, and it did, it affected everybody's life. Go get on an airplane, go into a sporting event, go to a concert, and the security procedures was just massive. And people wanted somebody's head. Uh, people wanted somebody to be responsible. And I think at the time, the easiest point was the CIA, which ironically, its failures, and it was a failure, was not in collaboration and sharing what it had in terms of its tracking of at least a couple of those who would be on those flights. But it was also the CIA, which was the only agency that not just, um, there's a famous presidential daily brief in August of 2001 about bin Laden determined to strike the homeland. In point of fact, the CIA for many, many months had been providing finished intelligence to the president, to decision makers that a massive attack was coming. It was inevitable. And the intended target was the United States. So there was also reference to the aviation plot of 1995, which was directed and led by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the, if you would, the, the, the one who was chief of operations for Al-Qaeda at 9-11, and his cousin, Ramzi Youssef, who's still sitting in a U.S. prison, for an attempt to have a, a multiple attacks on aircraft, either exploding them or hijacking them. It was essentially a variation of the same plot, and the agency did mention that in its early reporting. So, you know, failures are much more public. This was far more traumatic, and the agency was really the easiest organization to blame, with some justification for its failure to do everything it should have done to uh, avert the catastrophe. You referred before to, to the nature of the world before 9-11, the kind of unipolar nature, the fact that the U.S. did sit astride as, as really a sole superpower at that particular moment in time. To what extent did that potentially cause the agency to become a little fatter, a little lazier? I think it was less that. I think it was uh, more on a macro scale that the world was no longer going to play by rules that the United States may have set for the international order because the United States was going to start losing that supreme position of, of complete power. You know, China has been on the ascension for years. I think Russia as a power has been on the decline but has become more aggressive in the way it operates in terms of foreign policy and international affairs. So I think from a policy perspective, the United States was playing by old rules, and that has a trickle down to how we conduct national security, how we conduct national defense, and how we conduct intelligence. For the agency, I think where it suffered in the post-9-11 era was investing so um, totally in what it could do to accommodate the White House for good or for bad that it moved away from its traditional missions of being the, the, the cautionary voice of reason, the independent, in theory to some extent, independent objective voice of here's what's going on, here's where this path is leading, without recommending what to do. The CIA became much more of a policy player in, in the United States national security. It became more active in terms of 
solving White House problems, such as what to do with all the combatants that the FBI believed it could not legally prosecute, and the Department of Defense believed it could not hold as a prisoner of war because we were not at war with a sovereign nation. So it couldn't claim these prisoners, and you had the uh, enhanced interrogation program on the, on the black sites. In terms of the reliance on kinetic activities that the agency placed such value in and paramilitary operations for a fine, fix, and finish approach to identifying those who would do us harm, and then in the principle of self-defense, believing that we were empowered to remove them either by force, kinetically, or by capture. That really took the agency away from where it had always traditionally provide combat support to the U.S. military, but on a strategic scale, where it now is becoming a tactical player, and in many cases, an extension of U.S. military power projection. That created a cycle of events, dominoes, if you would, where the people who are benefiting from that professionally within the agency advanced on those lines and thus were those with less experience or interest in investment in human intelligence and intelligence collection of any sort. And that became a cyclical uh, generational uh, era of where those people were that advancing like-minded people who were more committed to being a, a policy extension of the White House and supporting White House policy as opposed to executing and providing objective intelligence assessment. And, and that's where we found ourselves, you know, after, after 20 years. And that's the, the, the hole from which I think the CIA needs to dig itself. It is an interesting irony within the arc of that 20 years that, that one of the, the high points for the CIA was its actions in Afghanistan immediately following 9-11. And one of the low points is the blame the CIA has gotten for the events as they unfolded in Afghanistan over the past several months. It's ironic indeed, but uh, in truth, the mission in Afghanistan changed. When people say, oh, we failed in Afghanistan, well, it depends on what your time frame is. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was a certainty that, that al-Qaeda was going to strike again. And I can tell you personally, it was. It had plans, it had people, it had direction and money, and it was planning more very significant attacks. So there was a desperate belief that we needed to get into Afghanistan and preempt those attacks by going after al-Qaeda. And the only way we could go after al-Qaeda was to go after the Taliban. Now, I think there's lots of room, and it's easy to play um, you know, Monday morning quarterback or Tuesday morning these days, and think what we could have done. But I think at the time, the Taliban gave us no choice but to attack them. But then I think after we secured um, Afghanistan and did what we could to at least suppress the immediate threat from al-Qaeda, I think there was room to negotiate and include them in a way that we wouldn't have seen the, these 20 years of failed policies where we had from hubris and overconfidence believed we could just create a political model that suited us, push it on Afghanistan, and think that was going to work, which it, which it never was. But the, the United States did succeed in preempting those follow-on attacks. And though there, there were attacks and limited lone wolves in the United States and the, the attack on, on the, the Spanish train railway system, the July 7th attacks in London, there was not another attack on the scale that al-Qaeda had planned and that we witnessed. So it depends on what your metrics for success are, and you could argue both sides. I think as we go into the future, uh, in a way, the CIA will be helped by the different landscape. 
and and ideally a different recognition in the United States that terrorism is significant, but it's not an existential threat. It's not going to cause the the collapse, the the destruction of the United States. But you weigh that against the politics of what happens when you know, God forbid, uh, Al Qaeda or another terrorist organization attack a metro here or a bus station or a school or a house of worship. That immediate blood is going to demand satisfaction and outrage. And will we will we shift again, or will we find the balance among American needs and requirements, and then not allow the the cure to become worse than the disease? Is there something inherent? that has grown up in the culture of the agency that makes it more effective when the issues are black and white as opposed to the asymmetric nature of the world it's dealing with today? It's, it's a really interesting form of words you put there, Jeff, because as an intelligence officer, I would say what the agency does better is deal in the abstract, is the ability to see in the gray, that there is in fact no black and white. There's no right and wrong, no good and evil among the world. There's principally U.S. interest, security interest, and there's what will people do and why? Be they national leaders, be they you know Putin, or Xi in, in China, or be they Al Qaeda or ISIS operatives. The idea is to be able to look through the, the world of your adversaries, your rivals and your competitors, and without emotion and with objectivity, determine what are they likely to do, what are their likely paths, and, and why. You spoke eloquently about the advent of, um, well, I should say the increasing reliance on technology for intelligence collection. The reality is uh, technology doesn't operate in, in, in an information vacuum. Most technology, technical collection, whether it's from satellites, uh, listening to people's conversations on phones and radio frequencies, uh, drones, whatever you want to introduce, even the eavesdropping device, is all enabled by people. It's people who are spies who tell us, where to look, for whom to look, what we're looking for, when to look for it, and sometimes giving us the keys, the back doors to get into their networks, to get into their computer servers, to know where to point the satellites and, and where, to, where to be pointing our, our, our audio collection devices. So I think that's lost on the, the public, which is rightfully enamored by technology. And then it's, uh, it's a, a sort of a narcotic for those within the intelligence community who see these, these amazingly effective gadgets. And, you know, talking again to the war on terror in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Syria, Libya, uh, Yemen, we got really good with the technology as far as kinetic operations. The ability to find, fix, and finish a target was remarkable. But that the technology worked doesn't mean that we, everything was working in the right interest. By our reliance on the technology, by the reliance on a war of attrition, a war of, if you would, whack-a-mole, we were actually creating stronger threats that we would have to face, be it a decentralized terrorist threats, be it a distraction from the ascendancy of ISIS in Syria and Iraq, uh, by distraction from advances in intelligence tradecraft, which we were not making, but our adversaries were, such that we were subject to Russian meddling, China technology thefts, uh, Iran's development of, of rather potent kinetic programs as well as intelligence programs because we were so focused on, well, look, we're having success. Look at our metrics. Look at how many terrorists we killed. But that's not really what addresses your security interests. Mm -hmm. To what extent has globalization and the interconnectedness of the world impacted tradecraft in the world of spying? 
everything in intelligence has a positive and a negative. It depends on how you manipulate it. We talk about intelligence being the art of manipulation, whether it's a human being that you're trying to manipulate to secure their voluntary cooperation to spy on their country, their government, their family even, or whether your manipulation is of the environment in which you're spying so that you can conduct your operation securely, whether you're manipulating the technology of that environment. These days you have biometrics, you have cameras, you have all sorts of ubiquitous technical surveillance, and you have new and arising institutions. You have the, the, you know, the amazing impact of cyber on our lives, uh, everything we do being so interconnected. So the global system has its strengths and its weaknesses from an intelligence perspective. There are opportunities therein to use it to actually improve your collection, but there's also threats from that integration and sharing which could compromise what you're doing if you know one set of partners or one set of adversaries gets on to a certain operational technique or reveals it to others. So it depends on, on how you choose to work with it. There's always changes, you know? You talked about, again, eloquently how spying's been around forever. I speak to it as the second, uh, the world's second oldest profession. <laughs> right. and, uh, and indeed it really is because people are always wanting those advantages. They always want to have that advantage over competitors or rivals or their enemies. I mean, just read Sun Tzu and the Art of War. It's, it's, it's about intelligence, really. So every generation brings changes in dynamics, human dynamics, and how we live with one another in our institutions, in our global institutions and technology. The thoughtful intelligence agencies sit back and go, where are the threats from these generational changes and what can we do to manipulate them so we turn them into our advantage as opposed to a threat? Has the world or other players in the world in, in the realm of, of spying and spycraft gotten better at this? Absolutely they have. And, and that's what the danger has been by our distraction and the intelligence community on this fine fix finish approach, this this you know belief that we could just sort of kill our way out of danger, and then how that promoted successive generations of leaders who were less willing to invest in traditional human intelligence collection or intelligence collection at all, that it was more about being proactive, about being a part of policy or, or executing on the White House's behalf. In the meantime, our rivals, our competitors, even our partners and our friends have all leveraged changes in the world, basically, basically be they political changes in the world um, or the technology and how they could rely on measures short of war to compete with what's still the most powerful country in the world, the United States is, but in a way that levels the playing field. While they've made those advantages competing with us in the information realm, in the technology realm, cyber, being able to penetrate, collect intelligence, or to disrupt us as a country, as a government, we've not made those same investments over the 20 years. So we're going to be playing catch up. And it's more than just the technical investments. It's how to align them with what we do and, and how we do it and what we do best in terms of intelligence. So you know, the CIA was created in 1947 to be a unique organization, different than putting our intelligence collection apparatus in Defense Department or in, in the State Department because we didn't want it to have a policy role. We didn't want it to have to, if you would, grade its own homework, that if it's making a policy recommendation, 
how is it going to be forthcoming and criticizing the results of that program? The CIA didn't have that. So as we retain that balance of foreign intelligence collection, analysis, and covert action, which were the three principal core missions of the CIA, the balance was always covert action, which is conducting a deniable act. That is that the United States could say, we have nothing to do with it, has to be of such import and measure and that the CIA is the only agency could do it, but it shouldn't become the preponderance of how CIA is used because at this point, how deniable is a lot of this, the, the covert actions the CIA conducted? People talk about drone strikes all the time. People talk about renditions and all these other factors. So they were technically deniable and that we said, uh, we didn't do that. Or we said, no, well, it wasn't us, but you know, the idea when you conduct a, a clandestine or a secret or deniable activity is that your target doesn't know it ever happened. And it's not just about crowing and going, aha, we got away with it. But when your target knows what's going on, it's making adjustments, it's making changes, it's responding in a way that could actually undermine what you thought was the achievement of your covert action or your covert collection. So the agency should be used as it was designed and it should be where it is the collector of last resort because it's going to take the risks that are undeniably one must take them and no one else could do it, or it's going to conduct an act of be it sabotage or whatever covert activity that the alternative would be going to war. The alternative would be, you know, the undermining of the United States, its security, its institutions. That's where that balance should come back. To what extent do those changes have to happen politically and administratively, or do they have to happen within the foundation and culture of the agency at this point? I think it was a, a perfect storm of events that caused the agency to go down that road. You know, the agency has had its failures and it's also had its mistakes over the years. And you mentioned a couple of them, I mean, citing the Bay of Pigs and and some of the activities in the 70s, which, you know, led to the church committees and oversight, you know, Watergate and, and spying on Americans and such in, in a way like the FBI did, but the FBI seemed to have less repercussions for doing so. So that's always going to be, there's always going to be that danger, but there always seem to be some components within the agency, within the intel community, within the political structure, which was able to right the ship and we could make course corrections. I do believe there was a fundamental shift in culture within the agency post 9-11. And I attribute that to the leadership of the agency at the time, which made that a deliberate and conscious decision to move away with what at least had always been the core values and directions of the agency since its founding. And I had an interesting conversation with a senior retired officer who I worked for as a junior officer, and he grew up in the agency in the 70s if you would, and he grew up with those committees. And I asked, I said, you know, when we look at the impact of Vietnam and the agency's role in that war, because it had a very decided paramilitary function in that war, which has been written about, I said, did it change the overall culture? And, and he, as I found from others, it really didn't because it was sort of segregated. You know, we conducted a, a paramilitary activity in Vietnam, or we had paramilitary activities in Latin America over the year, but we had not rotated our whole leadership and, and body of, of workforce to, to suggest that the only way you're going to advance in the CIA is to sign up for these programs. The only way you're going to profit and be recognized is to be part of covert action, to be part of paramilitary, 
to be part of kinetic operations. So then the people that were being groomed and ascending with the organization were all of those like minds. That changed the culture. I mean, the CIA has become in you know my last 17, 18 years, a very rigid, militaristic, hierarchical organization that wasn't the case for the first 17, 18 years of my career. We were a spy service. You didn't say sir or chief or stand smartly and your opinions, even if they were different, were welcomed. The, the, the atmosphere at the agency post 9-11, where sort of this new generation, this new culture was, you didn't question authority. You self-censored because you knew at your own risk if you were going to question something, if you're going to offer an alternative point of view, you could be squashed, literally. So I think that really made it for a terrible cultural shift in the agency, which as a spy service was all about, let's always make things better within ourselves. Let's look at what's not working. Let's look at the warts. Let's have our after action reports and fix things where this leadership became so rigid and so sort of a, a reliant on circling the wagons where when things did go uh, askew, rather than uh, address it head on and, and internally, and God knows, I don't think anything should be ever leaked because then you're just giving aid and comfort to the enemy and you're making the agency weaker. But internally, it should face the music and make changes and people should be accountable where these leaders who are all protecting one another basically circle the wagons and would hide behind, even within the IC, sources and methods to do nothing, to make no changes and to let people make those same mistakes in different leadership positions. And to bring it up to the present, the CIA has gotten a bunch of the blame for the recent failures in, in withdrawing from Afghanistan. I know you've written about this in Just Security. Talk a little bit about that before we close. Well, again, it's always really convenient for political leaders or those in the public eye, like General Milley has been, to say, oh, well, they didn't tell us it was going to be 11 days. Well, yeah, that's one, that's not how intelligence works. But if you look at the record, the, the classified record, and much of it has not been Unclassified, the CIA had always had a different picture of Afghanistan, the U.S. military. The U.S. military had always put a much rosier glow. I think that's because they felt they owned it, where CIA was always alarming that things are going bad, they're going worse. And certainly in that final year after the president had announced and made the decision in March that we were leaving, that's when the pieces started to fall apart. And the agency had always been very active in saying these conditions and circumstances, because you can't crystal ball. You can suggest, here's what the conditions could be or what our policies can be. Here, what we assess to be the projected outline based on our intelligence. Actually su suggested that a scenario of days to weeks for the entire country to collapse, the military to stop fighting, was likely under the conditions that we saw. So I, I always think it's hard when you're an intelligence service or a secret organization in an open society to defend yourself. That's largely why part of the director of national intelligence's role is to provide the American public a fair accounting of transparency as does oversight. But the DNI and, and congressmen are also political creatures elected who want to, you know, continue to be elected and appointed. So they're they're going to tag along in a very difficult way. I think uh, Senator Dan Coats and, and General Clapper did an excellent job serving Republicans and Democrats alike uh, when they were DNIs to be fair and to protect the intelligence community. They saw that as their role to insulate them and to be at least a link to the public to reassure them where, you know, you had um, Radcliffe under Trump, you had Grinnell under Trump, who totally saw themselves as political operatives. Avril Haines, time will tell, 
in what she does, but I'd like to think by some of the public, uh, publicly released documents, she has been trying to let the intelligence community do its job to reassure the American public and to promise commitment to correction when things do go wrong. Douglas Linden, his book is The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Doug, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. It's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.